Today we're, we're going to have an opportunity to do uh, something quite special. We're going to have a picnic outside. Thank God for the day, isn't it? Isn't it beautiful? And we're going to celebrate uh, servant leadership in the church. And then next week we're going to do something special again. We're going to be meeting with all the congregation out at Edgerton Eckert, Park uh, on Saturday. And we're going to have a special celebration again, celebrating ascension and the idea that that Christ is working in, with, and through us, his church, as we hear testimonies of the ascension ministry of Christ today. And so in many respects, this sermon is meant to buttress these two events. In fact, this very moment, all of our congregations are preaching the same text, so that when we come together on Saturday next week, uh, we'll have that text in our sort of mime and memory, and we'll, we'll have an opportunity to discuss it among ourselves. So So that's sort of the gist of why this sermon today, and yet I do want to put it into a much wider context. Some of you, of course, know that I like uh, the Southern novelist, short story writer, Flannery O'Connor, and she has particularly been uh, useful in speaking against that kind of nominal Christianity that she encountered in and around Macon, Georgia, in the days of her life. A kind of novel, a kind of a Christianity that, that lost the real grace of the gospel. But by grace, she would mean more than a forensic kind of understanding of grace. That is a legal definition that we just celebrated in the absolution. You see, we are saved by grace through faith alone, not of ourselves lest anyone can boast. And we are saved because there is a covenant objective to ourselves that determined our relationship with God. When we broke that covenant, it anticipated then the Savior, who would be a covenant executor on our behalf, and that covenant which both condemns us became the covenant which saves us. And it saves us not by our pouring over our own lives and examining ourselves, but pouring over the life of Christ and examining Him and finding ourselves in need of His saving work for our lives. That is union with Christ in a forensic sense. But what Flannery O'Connor particularly celebrated was an efficacious grace. A kind of cosmological idea that is very deeply rooted in the Christian understanding of grace as well. A grace of power. A grace of convergence. Convergence of heaven to earth. Let me pick up with that just a little bit as we think about this mystery of grace as by Southern novelist. She, at one point, uh, exclaimed about the sacrament of the sacramental church. If it's only a symbol, then to hell with it. That is something I want you to really remember. Especially today. Let me explain. O'Connor was responding to a fellow writer, Mary McCarthy, at a dinner party where it was boldly declared that the Eucharist was a mere symbol. O'Connor later explained, that was all the defense I was capable of at the time, but I realize now that this is all I ever will be able to say about it outside of a story. That's important. Except that it is the center of existence for me. All the rest of life is expendable. And of course, the stories Flannery O'Connor told, novels but mostly short stories, all before she died at the young age of 37 by lupus. 
But in each of these, there was this search for the connection between local, particular, ebb and flow, carnal manners and this efficacious mystery of sacramental grace that she believed so deeply infused the spirituality of everyday life. Influenced by the mystic French Jesuit Teilhard de Chardin and his idea of a mega point, Flannery thought that there was a sacramental convergence, and that word convergence, underline it, between the manners of local life and transformational mystery of grace. This was expressed in her Everything That Rises Must Converge essay. And then her reflective collection of essays entitled, many of you know them, Mystery in Manners. Now, O'Connor's program, if you will, was inspired by church ritual. But it was much greater in scope than that. It was about the very meaning of life. And the meaning of church itself. You see, she was in fact engaging perhaps the most rudimentary of all human explorations. Stop and think about it. If also infinitely complex of, in, of explorations. It pertains this, to the meaning of ordinary life as something out of the ordinary. It's perhaps this inherent, inherently planted prayer and a prayer that is prayed by all people of all faiths even. It's this sacred prayer on earth as it is in heaven. The universality of this prayer is reflected throughout cultures and is arguably at the heart of much postmodern, post-Christian, especially spirituality. Now one thinks of another seminal work of a social anthropologist named Marcia Alid in her The Sacred and the Profane, and what she described as hierophanies. Hierophany is a manifestation of the sacred in our time and space. And their relevance to the social cultural phenomena that is understood as what she calls the axis mundi. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. In other words, the cultural phenomena of an axis mundi represents places of ritual wherein, quote, we encounter the sacred as symbolized and even mediated by sacred pillars, quote, unquote, such as to break into the, quote, homogeneity of space and time, to symbolize an opening from heaven to earth and vice versa. Such places, it is argued, became, quote, a communication with heaven is expressed by one or another of certain images, all of which refer to the axis mundi. This is religion, as from the vantage point of a social anthropologist. And it's not altogether different from the conception of religion that we get in reading our Bibles. I mean, just think about the redemptive historical story of our Bible, Old and New Testament. And in all through it, there are these hierophanies of sacred tree of life as regulated by creation covenant. There are these images of, of uh, or I'm sorry, uh, there are these tabernacles. There are these temples. There are just, just piles of stone all symbolizing a real encounter, a convergence of heaven to earth. Many of them sanctioned, 
The ones I just mentioned, for instance, by God and his covenant. Many, though, times we encounter other faiths experiencing and seeking the same thing. We think of the ziggurats. We think of the images made with hands. And on and on it goes. This, of course, is the prayer. The yearning on earth as it is in heaven. So into our present context. You see, there was a time when such convergence had an address where in the very axis mundi of human history because was, became a specific location on a particular day known to the world as Jesus of Nazareth. This is, of course, the subject matter of the now famous distinct but not separate, divine but human convergence that we think of in 5th century Christology. And Christ's incarnational ministry culminating in his death and resurrection became the basis again of our Christian assurance by saving faith in a once and for all convergence of heaven to earth in the person of Christ. But it raises the question, what about salvation applied today? Is there such a convergence? Is there such a sacramental grace where power is manifest in the ordinary ebb and flow of carnal life? Well, that brings us to John's gospel. John wants to introduce Christ in just this manner. For the word. This holy, divine, covenantal word became flesh and templed among us. Full of grace. Efficacious grace there. And truth. Forensic, covenantal truth. Together, converged in flesh and ordinariness of mundane life. And that we'll see is what defines us today in the very ceremonies and celebrations that we make. Underneath it is what every one of your friends are praying for and wanting. They're searching for it. Is there something special on earth wherein it can be found? Would you pray with me as we go to John? And so, God, we thank you for this moment where we can step back and think big about really the meaning of life and what our lives are all about. And, Father, we are deeply moved when we think of this great history, a convergent history, a convergence of heaven to earth from Eden to the end of Revelations. When we see that amazing picture of of not us going up to Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, but Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, coming down to earth with Christ's bodily return. But now, Lord, we wait. We find ourselves in the in-between time. And we wonder, are you present? Is there sacred space anymore? Come, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, show us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm going to outline this little careful exegetical survey through the book of John, particularly in chapter 14, with these four little subtitles, if you will. One is going to be described, the convergence of heaven to earth 
at all creation, which is described in John chapter 1 through 5. It's the way he sets up the whole gospel. And then two is the convergence of heaven to earth as Christ's incarnation, which is the subject matter of John 1, 6 through 13. Chapter 13, I should say, where he gets you to the upper room. Third is the convergence of heaven to earth in Christ's ascension, which contains almost half of the book of John, chapter 14 through 20. And finally, the convergence of heaven to earth at consummation in the return of Christ with heaven to earth, which of course ultimately will culminate in John's writings in Revelations 21. So first, the earth of creation very quickly. Did you notice, if you remember, how John picks up with the book? In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, we're now in Eden. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Eh? You see there? Word that is never separate from, but distinct in certain sense, there's the mystery of Christology already presented by John. He was in the beginning with God. He now, a person, is the word. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, and here's John, and his focus of, of grace was life. Was life. Yes, Matthew will describe it as the law, the covenant and focuses most of his gospel on divine institution, Christ, the covenant head and executor of the covenant of old. He came not to abolish but fulfill the covenant. That's Matthew. John, though he acknowledges that, as you'll see, wants to talk about this life of Christ. And in what sense does the light shine into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it? He's talking about efficacious grace here coupled with truth. You see, Eden is portrayed as both a covenantal and temple context that begins a salvation story. As a covenant event, Eden is formed by divine words from heaven, functioning as a paradigm or a blueprint of what life is to be with God on earth as it is in heaven. But as a temple context, Eden is formed as by divine presence from heaven. Function is the power of life itself with God on earth as God is on heaven. This stuff is mind-boggling, people. I hope you, you can appreciate this. We've got to step back and listen to this gospel again. Together, Eden reflects the convergence of heaven to earth, the center of the life itself. And as will be consistently revealed throughout the remaining of redemptive history, as according even to John's introduction, is fulfilled in Christ. One Old Testament scholar described this whole mystery this way about Eden. He says, as the overshadowing glory was present at the beginning of the first creation, so it was again present at epochal beginnings in the history of recreation. Recreation is repeated over and over and over again in the Old and New Covenants, at Sinai, the Incarnation, Baptism, Transfiguration of the Son of God, at Pentecost, we see this glory. And it because the Spirit's presence is redemptive in recreation, 
is once more both as power, that's temple presence, and as paradigm, covenant law. The consummation of redemptive history witnesses the appearing of the eternal cosmic human temple of God that is in Christ as both word and flesh, a temple among us. What he's just said is this trajectory, covenant, temple together, distinct but never separate, word, fleshed out in presence, is the two most consistent trajectories throughout all of redemptive history. John, in his introduction, wants us to get in touch with that. It's to be sure, I've said it many times here, I'm sure, but that there was never a time, really, never a time in all of redemptive history where salvation was accomplished apart from the transaction of this covenant, which again is the basis of saved by grace through faith alone when that covenant is transacted by a covenant executor in our stead. The whole meaning of rituals center on that very reality and transaction. One thinks of the flaming torch through the slain animals, etc. But likewise, it is revealed that there was never a time in all of redemptive history, never, wherein salvation was applied apart from participation in God's mediatorial presence. If not immediate in Christ, mediatorial in temple. Christ being the temple of God. Therefore, according to John's gospel, Christ's incarnation is therefore introduced and the word, the very eternal created word, God, became flesh, human, and templed or dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, that glory that I just described to you, that always manifests itself over, in, with, and through temple and covenant. We have seen that glory as the only son from the Father, full of efficacious grace and paradigmatic truth. That is, the very nature of Christ's person. It's interesting, isn't it? In our post-modernist, or modernist, I should say, whether more modernist or post, whatever you want to describe it, it's interesting that we got off the circuit a little bit with all this philosophizing about the Incarnation and Christology and the two natures. Here, Paul does not use, or, or John does not invoke these philosophical concepts so, far, so much. Many of you have even tried to study John that way. Here, he invokes the history of redemption. There, this nature of Christ's person is related to the fulfillment of an ancient redemptive historical trajectories concerning the divine institutions of covenant and temple, power and presence. John's reference to word and temple is, of course, a reference to God's appointed means of grace. I mean, think about it. There's one poignant moment that illustrates the two together and how important they are. Some of you may remember Moses. And he's being led, he's been commissioned to go and lead the people, the nation, to the, to the covenant promised land. And Moses, rightly understanding the history of redemption, says, I can't go without you. I need your presence. God says, I'll go. Noah, Noah steps over here and goes, you just a couple chapters earlier said that, that we are stiff-necked and rebellious people and that you can't. Surely you can't dwell with us without cremating us, Lord. (laughs) You know, I don't want you to go with us. And he was in a dilemma. 
And that's that classic place where God says to Moses, 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 calm down. I am. And he describes himself as one who can have mercy on whomever he, can have mer- he wants to have mercy on. And grace, etc. This is quoted by Paul in chapter 9 of Romans. So climax in that book to describe the mystery and the power of a sacramental convergence heaven to earth in a manner in which we get both God's power and justice and assurance of salvation through grace alone. It's just, it's just magnificent, this incredible story. And that's what John is packing into this incredible journey of his in the gospel. That brings us to number two, the convergence of heaven to earth in Christ's incarnation, John 1, 14 through 13. There's this curious thing. We're going to be talking about, of course, the ascension ministry of Christ. That's where I want to focus. And there are two particular instances where the word for ascension, or and the first for I am ascending, or in some variation, is used. The first time is used in chapter 7, verse 8, and it's used in the negative. The first use here is stated in, I am not ascending, in other words. And it's a rebuke to those whose expectations wanted him to skip over his covenant-satisfying incarnational ministry, where he was to become the executive, uh, direct, you know, the executor of the covenant, that, that those were wanting to go and be glorified and, and to ascend now. And it was all related around a great temple feast where he would go up onto the mountain and there would be a great you know, glorification of him. And he, and he rebuked them. I am not going up to this feast for my time for glorification has not yet fully come. This is the first installment of word become flesh and templed among us vis-a-vis the incarnation of Christ. And it's how our salvation is accomplished forensically, by faith through grace. The word justification comes from that ministry related to his incarnation. and We love that doctrine greatly. But then there's a segue. John's focus on Christ's incarnation ministry concludes in chapter 13 when Christ then tells his disciples, quote, Now is the Son of Man to be glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will, now this is important, listen, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot go. Notice carefully, after Christ's death and resurrection, he's now going to be glorified. And yet we see him say, you will look for me, but you will not find me because I will be in heaven with the Father. Now, stop and think here. In what sense will they not find him? You mean there's no longer any axis mundi, no longer any convergence? Christ is never present with us again until he comes again bodily? Is that what he means? Hmm. This brings us to John chapter 14 through 20. Right after this statement, right after this curious statement, Christ further explains, you heard it read, let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. House with many rooms? Slow down. Don't just go to the consummate heaven here. We need to read the Bible slowly. I know I've said that so many times. If it were not so, would I have told you that? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Okay, so set up by this bombshell, the disclosure that he's about to die, and he's, and he's about to leave them. He says this. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now, Father's house is always, in Scripture, a reference to the temple. I go to prepare them a temple place for you. You could just as well insert. And he says, I, this is where it gets wild, I will come and take you there myself. Oh, whoa, whoa, Lord, you just said I can't follow you where you're going. But now I'm going to come and take you there, this temple house, myself. Hmm. Not in heaven. Remember, he just said he couldn't follow him to where he was going. Or perhaps he's talking about the day when he comes back, the second return, bodily, etc. Or maybe he's talking about the time in between the resurrection and his ascension. Hold on. Note again, in his house, temple, there are many rooms. What does he mean by different rooms? Is it one temple, universal, with many local manifestations, perhaps? Again, we know the answer to that if you read Paul. But here, in Ephesians 2, for instance. But here it's still vague, but it's going to show up. Watch. Then we get Philip's question. Philip's question seems odd to us. It really just seems to come right out of nowhere. I've hardly heard anyone just reading it casually goes, huh? Why did he turn to change the subject here? Why would John put this little weird question up there? Because he says, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. Now, why that question? Again, read it in context. Lord, show us the Father was a classic Jewish way of talking about God as a personal God. A paternal God caregiving God, a God unlike all the pagan gods who were not personal, who were spiritual and spirituality in, with, and through all the world. We call it monism. They would make these gods of nature to try to to engage and even manipulate the power and to make it somehow personal, which was, of course, laughable all through the Old Testament. The prophets just joked about it all the time. Silly. But this is really significant. Spirituality, you see, in the New New and Old Covenant scriptures, was always a spirituality of personhood, personal God, personal saviors to a personal church. And so what he's really saying, hold it, show us the Father is to say, don't make this abstract, God. Don't leave me to heaven and leave me without you, the Son of God, who is to reveal the Father personally. And you'll see that's how he answers him. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? And he's basically, I have shown you the Father. But what's really interesting 
is this little phrase he's going to pick up in the priestly prayer in chapter 17. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now we've just been introduced to some very important categories. In seeing me, incarnation is by the mystical union of the Trinity, you have seen the Father. You have seen personal God. And it sets up the possibility that you could see Jesus personally still too by yet another member of sacred divine family quote quote trinity father son who holy spirit oh and that's exactly what jesus starts talking about and he starts off with this idea that look you don't understand it's better that i go greater works will you do could he perhaps be talking about that Temple of God with many rooms. Rooms that are now not located in a single address where Jesus of Nazareth happened to be walking that day. But a room that is now mystically communed to us by the Holy Spirit wherein Jesus is there. I'm giving it away, aren't I? Mystically united to the flesh of the flesh of the church. Look what happens. Because I am going to the Father, speaking of his ascension ministry, Christ then is bodily not on earth. This then speaks not to his interim ministry after resurrection or before the ascension or his returning again. He's made it clear. He's talking about right now between his resurrection and his second return. He's talking about his while he is bodily with the Father ministry on earth. How? How will he do all this? It is still Christ's work, he says, work that I will do on earth, he says, quote-unquote. But somehow those who believe will be involved with it now, he says. Greater work doesn't mean that the works will surpass those of Jesus, as if he's not working now, it's about the Holy Spirit. Rip this out of context like so many have done, and this is all about the Holy Spirit. No, this is still about Jesus, the works that I will do, he says. So How? He says, 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, that's a really important word, advocate, paraclete, helper, co-laborer, if you will. The, that, um, and this, it, who will be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. There's the mystery. This mediated presence vis-a-vis the advocacy of the Holy Spirit. Advocating for the Father and the Son. And we now being united to him in his advocacy. He in us, I in you. I mean, this is language here, guys. Just read it. It's amazing. So just as Jesus has advocated for the Father, so Jesus will continue to do this by sending the Holy Spirit, who will advocate on behalf of him. This another paraclete, somehow, obviously, the paraclete will take the place of Jesus, but at the same time will bring Jesus into the place. So, what do we have here? There's another, coupled with Jesus saying, I will come, coupled with, I will bring you to this house I'm going to build during my ascension ministry, 
house with many rooms, greater things. Christ further speaks then as we go on through this passage, and I'll just summarize it, of making his, quote, home with us, verse 14, verse 23 of chapter 14, of making his home with us. He's not absent. And then immediately he says, I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, and the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I've said to you. And then here again, Christ will leave, but then will come, he says, after, quote, a short while, end quote, to manifest himself to them, just as some time he will come again to take them to himself into the Father's house. This is extraordinary language. A great biblical theologian named Richard Gaffin sums it up this way, and I'm just going to read it. He says, quote, The gift of the Spirit is nothing less than the gift of Christ himself to the church. The Christ who has become what he is by virtue of his sufferings, death, and exaltation. In this sense, the gift, baptism, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is the crowning achievement of Christ's work. It is his coming in exaltation of the church and the power of the Spirit. It completes the once and for all accomplishment of salvation. It is the apex thus far reached in the unfolding redemptive history. Without it, the work that climaxes in Christ's death and resurrection will be unfinished and incomplete. Do you know what that means? That means from this moment on, we don't study the ascension ministry, the often lost historical event of salvation, Historia Salutis. We've seemed to lost that, that doctrine, that idea. How many of you have really ever celebrated ascension? You don't have to raise your hand. How many have you heard sermons on it over the years compared to the sermons of incarnation, Christmas, Easter? This for John is the climax of salvation for us right now, awaiting that ultimate climax of his return. Greater things are happening now. And what this means then is the ascension ministry is not a mere epilogue at the end of a gospel. Oh, and he went up in glory. Well, that was cool. It's now to study this event salvifically. And more than that, if in fact there is a temple church, then we must study it salvifically as well, as, a, as what we call a doctrine of soteriology, not just ecclesiology in itself. It is the continuation of salvation. And we're afraid to say that, and I'll tell you why, because we don't distinguish covenant work of Christ from temple work of Christ. We get them all confused. There's forensic grace, saved by grace through faith alone, the once and for all work of Christ incarnationally on the cross and resurrection, and there is the efficacious grace, the power of Christ. And that brings us to the second use of Anabeno. The second use of Anabeno, this time where we find ourselves outside of the tomb of Christ. This is, by the way, the context that inspired this painting. Mary, of course, is grieving the loss of the incarnation of Christ. Christ appears to her. First she doesn't comprehend who he is, then she does, then what does she do? She runs to him and just clings to him, just will not let go of him. This is symbol. John uses this as symbol. Because Jesus now rebukes her just like he did the others before. Before it was a rebuke of, I am not ascending. This time, don't cling to me. Don't hang on to my body here. He's already explained it now in John's gospel why it's better for him to go, remember? 
John's picking up on that. Don't cling to my body. Don't cling to the memory. This isn't about a memorial. This isn't about all the good old days. The good old days are still in front of us. He says, go, tell the disciples on Abano. This time in the positive, I am ascending. That leads to the Great Commission. With the disciples there, he says, just as the Father has sent me, so also I am sending you, plural. We pay special attention to the just as dot, 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 so statement. How is it that God sent his son? John 1.14, the word became flesh and templed among us, full of truth and grace. Just as I sent, just as God sent me, so I send you. I'm remembering now John 17. I and the Father one, you and me and one, we are one. I and we, you and me, da 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 And you know what happens right after this Great Commission? I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> you just couldn't make this stuff up. What does he do? He turns to them and he says, peace be with you. The classic temple benedictory opening. He starts a temple service. Look what he says. Peace be with you. Temple benediction. Temple commission. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. Temple power. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Temple absolution. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld from them. Wow. Now that explains Paul when he says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head, covenant, over all things to the church, temple, which is his body, temple, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He picks up with that and he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens, blah, 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 you know, on the foundation, the household of God. There's that household language again. Built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, that's the covenant foundation, the paradigm, the blueprint, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. There's the power. And you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And all we're awaiting now, during all this time, is just to be the church. Not, not just a source of mission in the world. The church is locusts, the power, and the glory. I think you know where I'm going now. I'm talking to you who are servant leaders in this church. I'm just going to say it. There's no greater thing you could be doing in your life with more great of a, I can't get all the words out, with a greater legacy. I really believe that. You are participating in salvation. Every time you move a chair, the ordinary, mundane ebb and flow where there is this mystery of convergence. I have quite a lot of wonderful things I could talk about in theological terms, but I want us to see it, make sure that you know that what I'm saying is not somehow outside of the consensus that we hold as a church called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It strikes you, maybe, if you've read it for the first time in Westminster Confession of Faith, that we hear about this visible church, which is also Catholic and university, is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and the family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. That might strike you as, oh, we all know, you know, baptism doesn't save you. Yes and no. 
you go through the confession, it's very clear. If I were to ask you the question, does baptism confer grace? Literally, powerfully, answer from our confession, yes. Put a period there. That's what it says. We are engrafted into the body of Christ in our mystical union through Christian baptism. And y'all are getting really nervous right now. Because you're going to want to ask me, I mean, necessarily, really? I mean, okay, so, so grace is coming through baptism, but is it necessarily coming? The answer will be no. And necessarily immediately coming through baptism? The answer again will be no. But let's don't throw the baby out with the baby water. No, we have a covenant, and we'll hear, basically the answer will be all predicated upon divine election or sovereignty. It ultimately depends on the Holy Spirit that Christ decide, described in John, remember, who comes and goes as he pleases. But yes, the plan is, which God can break his plan if he wants, but the plan is that we are saved at once both by covenant execution and by temple presence. It's applied to us through doctrines that will no show up in our confession. If you've been a teacher, you'll know these doctors, doctrines. Effectual calling, sanctification, perseverance, glorification, all doctrines that speak to efficacious grace by grace. On the covenant side, it's justification and assurance. All united to Christ by grace. So here's the way our confession will talk about it. It'll talk about this visible church in union with Christ, out of which there's no ordinary possibility of salvation, as I've said. And you say, then what kind of union? And let me just read a little paragraph here. Um, he's talking about this, this union or this fellowship that we have with Christ and the nature of that fellowship in our confession. And here's how it says it. The local body of Christ is where all saints, Christians, are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit, such as to have fellowship with him in his graces. It further clarifies how this fellowship in Christ's graces is a mystery and is being united to one another in love, such as to have communion in each other's gifts and graces, both in the inward and in the outward person. I mean, it's going all over the place trying to explain this stuff to you. We're told about the grace of, of the covenant, that there's a, spirit, there's a spiritual relation between the sign and the thing signified. That means if our confession later tells you that we're engrafted by Christ, in, in baptism, what it means is there's a spiritual relation between that engrafting, that is by the Holy Spirit executed, between the sign, water, and the thing signified engrafting into Christ. It's all through it. Well, let me just go all through this now. I'm going to zip down to the applications. I want you to make sure, first of all, when we talk about this union with Christ, that you distinguish forensic union or that kind of union that is by grace through faith alone unto justification, and that efficacious union, that is that union which is united by Christ by the Holy Spirit's presence, wherein Christ's presence is mediated to us in power. The power enables us to receive, we're told in our confession, even as what we receive is a grace objective to ourselves accomplished by Christ. John Calvin, when, they was, when there was a big debate between Nevin and, and Hodge, they quoted Calvin. I won't go into the debate, but here's what he says about this, this amazing mystery. He says, quote, we acknowledge without any circumlocution. He doesn't talk through, rationalistically through this mystery. He just talks right around it. That's fine. He, mystery's good. 
He says, we acknowledge without any circumlocution that the flesh of Christ is life-giving. Talking about the ascension flesh of Christ. Not only because once it is in it our salvation was obtained, justification, but because now we have united in him in sacred union, it breathes life into us. Because being by the power of the Spirit and grafted in the body of Christ, we have a common life with him. Peter's our partaker of the divine nature. For from the hidden fountain of divinity, life is in a wonderful way infused into the flesh of Christ and thence flows out to us. Christ is absent from us to the body by his spirit, however dwelling in us. He so lifts us to himself in heaven that he transfuses the life-giving vigor of his flesh into us as we grow by a vital heat of the sun. Edwards described this light, covenant, heat, power. Paradigm, power. There's so many ways that people have tried to explain this. So what does this mean for us today? Well, number one, your neighbor is starving for this. There's, there's some stuff coming out right now about the church and our culture. And what's coming out is, is of course, we hear it a lot, is this idea of mystery and the sort of spiritualist. The spiritualist who used to be Christians or maybe are Christian spiritualists. But the key thing is, and I'm quoting from a Huffington Post article here, the key thing is that, that, they, that people are leaving the church in droves. That's what it says. People leaving church in droves, quote, unquote. And it's true. I go back to Atlanta. People used to go to church, don't go to church anymore. And they tell me very unapologetically, these are boomers, not just millennials. Unapologetically, well, I don't really, that organized stuff, I, I don't need that anymore. I, I got Jesus. And if you were to say to them, well, no, you don't get it all. You don't get it at all. I mean, you, you know, you really need community. They're going to say, what are you talking about? I got great community. I mean, I'm on a soccer field with five moms racing all over the world. Man, we have great community. And I have great community with my girlfriends. After we play golf, this is what was said to me last. I get, and it went into Vincent Posture, who just explained to me, and my cousin, you know, we have a wonderful community. We go to Starbucks and we talk and share that's right, they do. They have community. I'm not going to take that away from them. Oh, we have great teaching. I don't need to go to church to get teaching. Man, I got podcasts. Podcasts just fine. In fact, these are world-class sermons I got to hear on podcasts. I mean, it used, you know, when you publish it, it used to be think that you went through some kind of a grid, and if you really got published, it must be worthy of listening. I think people now think that about podcasts. I mean, if you, if you have the wherewithal, I guess, to put it on a podcast, you must be worthy to listen to I have a podcast. I don't need to go to church. I hear sermons all the time. What are you going to say, Christian? Do they? Anecdotally, I can tell you that through these mundane, ordinary, ebb and flow, love one another, serve communion, Christian baptism, on it goes of what we call the life of the church in ways not so noteworthy on an on a extravaganza piece, I've seen lives absolutely night and day changed. I've seen people who, who are in all places of life saved through the transformative grace 
that is mystically united to them through the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. I believe we need to go back to this. We need to go to these folks, the nuns, the non-affiliated people, and there's a whole story about them too, but I won't tell it, and we need to start believing that. We need to go back to the first century and see how they did conversion. I'll guarantee you're not going to find a sinner's prayer. Just pray with me and write it on the book in the back of your Bible and you're saved. No, remember Gustin's confessions? He had that great quote, what many evangelicals have called the converting experience in chapter 8, and he tells it right there in the end of chapter 8, and yet I was not yet saved. I don't know why we didn't read that. He had not yet been incorporated into the body of Christ, the mystical union wherein his sins, he described the day of his baptism, was, was, fell off his back. We need to think, rethink conversion. The manners. You see, I'm talking about manners now. The mystery I've described mostly today. Manners? Church is an essential element of the gospel. If you want total Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Conversion's got to be ecclesial. Missions got to be ecclesial. We, we, missions is, by its very definition, church planning, according to Acts. That's the way it's summarized, all the great moments of Acts, and the church flourished. He doesn't count how many individual conversions there are, though they're, and that's always celebrated. He counts how many churches are planted, where the people have access now to the mediatorial presence of Christ. This is crazy stuff that, that is not odd if, you, if we would read our church history and how we interpret the Bible before modernity. But I want to end with this thing about you. In a minute, we're going to hear you stand, all of you who have some service role here, and you're going to say, I'm Bill Finney. I just happened to see you over there. Is that Bill over there? I have bad eyes. There you are. I thought you were there. Um, I'm a Sunday school teacher. And what I want you to hear, and I almost get misty-eyed thinking about it, is the mystic communion, the mystical presence, where the flesh of Christ by the Holy Spirit is joined to the flesh of Bill Finney. His voice, his style, and it's becoming the very living word to children sitting around a table. That's the mystery. The living flesh, when you stand and said, I'm a servant leader board member, and I, I work with the team on, on, I don't know, food. I want you to hear in that name and in that person and that personality, this mystical union of Christ, wherein he is bringing healing and sustenance to us through that person. It's a miracle. You can't put it in your brain, and that's all right. Because it's everywhere in Scripture that salvation is supernatural, not natural. Let's prepare our hearts now to this sacred sacramental table as we commune together in that.